I'm going to continue my series on Galatians. And for the young adults, this is going to be a bit of a deja vu. Um, I don't see many of them here, so it's you guys who are blessed as well. Um, But I've skipped a little portion, and I've skipped it only because, and I want to be honest with you, because those who have been following me so far might go, oh, Tibor, you didn't go through this part. I will go back to it. I I genuinely felt led to speak about this portion of Galatians that I will go into, and I've I've followed that, and I trust that God will speak to you and to your hearts, and that is where my faith is this morning. So for those who would like to follow with me, um, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to verses 21. And, and, this is what, and this is what it says. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For, the, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his, in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, I know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also amongst, among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for it is righteousness. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let us bow our heads in prayer one more time before we delve into this. Father, we come before you, Lord, once again. We're asking you, Lord, that you teach us your truth. Because, God, we know no other truth. And we proclaim that your son died for our sins. And because of this, we are justified in your presence. That we may know you, experience you, and live for you. We thank you for your grace, Father. We thank you that you emptied everything you have for us to have what is written in your word right now. I pray, Lord God, that as we leave here, 
that we don't forget the words that you speak to people and that we carry on to remember who justifies us and who loved us first. We thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. In your precious son's name I pray. Amen. Growing up, I was, I was no stranger to Jesus or a lot of Christian teachings. I mean, I grew up pretty much in this church. Um, and in my family, the very ethos of the family was Christianity. I remember asking my mum about you know, certain behaviours and she's like, oh no, Christians don't do that. And it was very much that. And it's, it's not a bad thing, but I, I remember a lot of that quite distinctly. And in my teenage years, I started to get serious about thinking about this guy Jesus, who I've been surrounded by in church and family. And the one thing that always plagued me was this idea of going to hell. And it terrified me. But I learned at the time, and also through God working through our youth pastor Nathan, through doing a one-to-one discipleship with me, that Jesus died on the cross and for me, and this saved me from this fear. And I decided I wanted to follow Jesus. So at about 14 or 15 years old, I decided to get baptised. And the journey of being a follower of Jesus has not been easy, not because of standing out in, in a, with my different views in society, although that is a part of it, but my struggle was it seemed that all, all these Christian messages I kept hearing was, God has big plans for you, big, big plans. And I felt like I'm not making a big enough splash in society and therefore I am not a good enough Christian. And then I would go to a bunch of meetings with Christians and I would feel this real excitement. And I know that's not new to a lot of people. And then I'm chasing a feeling all of a sudden. And then my thoughts were, the better of a Christian that I am, the more I would experience God. Now, how I set to achieve this was making sure I read my Bible every day. Uh, I went even to an extreme where some days during the week I would have cricket training after school and instead of just having my Bible with me at school and reading it there beforehand, I would take the bus all the way home, read it, and then come all the way back because that's more pious. Now, with non-Christians, I made sure to stand out I had to stand out as a Christian. Uh, you know, if I was at a party, don't, t- don't touch a single drop of alcohol. Yet at other times, this didn't apply. And I ended up living, all the, st- living the way that I was despising too. I thought that you weren't a good Christian if you're not telling others about Jesus. And people had to know that I was a Christian. And all my behaviour had to reflect Christian living. I had prayer times that I stuck to. I listened to preachings every day at certain times. Pretty good, right? Sounding like a good Christian here. Now, a lot of this isn't bad, per se. But you'll begin to understand why this wasn't good either. Apart 
part of trying to be really good, there was the other side of it. Also being bad and struggling with sins in my life and trying to compensate for my sin by trying to be as good as I could be. Now, there were times where I felt like my good deeds, like praying, reading the Bible, helping others, whatever the case may be, were outweighing the bad. And so the list of good deeds was higher than the bad. I felt like I was winning. But then someday, the bad deeds outweighed the good. Now, during these times when I thought I was doing well as a Christian, I felt better than non-Christians. I even felt better than my brothers and sisters in Christ because I looked at them and I said, ha, you don't, you don't do as much as I do. You can't be a good Christian. Although I never did that outwardly. It's the first time I'm confessing that. <laughs> but I passed from the phase of trying to catch this feeling because this was not accurate. Slowly what happened was I started to taper off from this fervor of being the best Christian I could be because I was setting a standard so high for myself and then as I became an adult, I noticed that I started to drop in that. Other questions plagued me simply because as I was maturing and more, more out there in society, I started to question so much of what I had felt so strong about earlier in my life. And more than everything, Christianity started to become a chore. But the one thing I was always missing was a sense of peace and the assurance that God actually offers when in a relationship with him. What I did is I created my own prison with my own rules and my own twisted views of what I should be. For whatever reason, I don't know, I can only chalk this up to grace that within my adult years, God continued to reveal his gospel to me in a way that I've never experienced before in my life. As, as I began to question my faith, the more I questioned, the more validity I found in what the Bible was saying. I looked at the Christian belief system against all other belief systems and not having a belief system. And I realised I was not conned in what I had first believed. The truth that God offered me was like an arrow shooting straight towards its target in the harshest winds, in the harshest environment that an arrow should not be able to fly. The assurance I craved for for so long came to me one night when I asked God to give me a sign when I die, I would definitely go to heaven because remember, that was my first fear and that continued. Full knowing that God would not give me what I was asking. At this moment, I had a real strong sense of God telling me, not in an audible voice, but in my mind, one thing was pointed to and that was his word. And the thought that came to me was, Tibor, your biggest fear in life is the main message of the Bible. God has addressed your issue, and that is your sign. 
I learn at that moment that I have nothing to fear except God himself. And that fear is settled through scripture and through Christ. And fear itself becomes dead. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Why did I tell you all this about my life? <laughs> sermon is not about me. But it's the best way I can convey to you the message behind our scripture reading this morning. Because the big picture behind the scripture reading this morning is it shows that no amount of religious observance of God's commands should give anyone a sense of superior status because a person standing in right sight of God depends on Christ and faith in him and not anything that a person has done. Now, as we go into this scripture, we see that... So Cephas is Peter, by the way, the Apostle Peter. Just, um, I know some people get confused with that. So, Hebrew. Cephas is Hebrew, yes, for Peter. Um, so, as we know in the Galatian church... Uh, there, there was a problem, and this is why Paul writes his letter, because he's, he's, he's addressing it. After Paul left, uh, as you all know, other missionaries came, and they were preaching that Jesus was only part of the answer that saves us and brings us back to God. The other missionaries were saying, alongside Jesus, you must follow the laws of the Jews to be truly accepted by God. It was something like this. Faith in Christ plus works of the law equals justification. Instead of Paul's message, which is faith in Christ equals justification and then works of the Spirit follow. The message of the false missionaries creates a massive problem as their message diminishes everything that God has done to restore humanity to them through Christ. We see through this morning's scripture that this is a genuine struggle for people. We automatically think that to be good and be seen as in right standing with God is to do good works. Now, good works are a part of the story, but it's not the only part. No. It's actually what follows afterwards. No. Now, I certainly went through this we naturally try to justify ourselves and the only way we can do that is pointing to our good behaviour. Now, we see in verses 11 to 15 that Peter was amongst these Galatian churches and Paul was there too. Now, him being there, it, it, it's a really big deal. We know through Acts that Peter did still struggle to be part of non-Jewish people and it's not until he was called to, to go, I think it was to Cornelius... Um, that this, he, he was shown that, no, the gospel is also for uh, Gentiles. But he was there amongst the Galatians, and he was living like them. So naturally, a non-Jewish society would not be living like the Jews. They would be living like their own culture. Now, Peter was among them, and he took apart, um, and he put aside his, his culture... He even possibly ate non-kosher, which is such a big deal. 
that is, unclean foods, as per the law. Because at this point, he would realise that it is actually Christ and faith in the same Jesus that binds us together. It is not all these, all these laws. And now the Galatian Christians would have seen uh, Peter was living among them and see him forsaking all that. And so that was a really powerful witness to them that they too had a share in this law or through Christ that, that Peter so belonged as well. But what happens is other Jews come to this province and Peter appears to withdraw from them, from the non-Jewish Christians, and reverts back to what he knows best. Imagine Apostle Peter was our pastor and you know, we know he's a part of a different culture and you know, he shouldn't really be with us and doing a bunch of stuff that his culture would say is wrong. But whilst he's with us, he comes to our houses, he eats our food, we go to his house. Um, our commonality with one another is purely because we share the same faith. And then all of a sudden, our pastor Peter's friends come and he rejects us all of a sudden. What would that do to the church? Imagine a pastor rejecting someone because they're not good enough to be in their presence. There's no grace in this and therefore no gospel. What's even more condemning about Peter's actions is that others began to follow him and led others astray from the gospel. Now Paul cannot stand idly by he challenges Peter, and not privately. He does it for everyone to see. Not because this is a battle of the egos, but because Paul saw that there was something deeply wrong. And the question we got to ask ourselves is, what kind of gospel are we conveying to others? What kind of gospel are we conveying when we congregate as a church? And this puts a bit of weight on us. If we proclaim Christ crucified and the truth is faith in him and this needs to be present and shown amongst us. There are so many well-meaning Christians out there who sometimes forget what the gospel is and they pour guilt on others, others' wrongdoing. I've had it done to me. And when I searched the scriptures that were used against me, I had nothing to do with my situation. In turn, they condemned themselves, not me. There are also those who are so afraid of stepping over the line and doing the wrong thing that this becomes what they project onto others as well. If others don't fit into their box of morality and ethics, they bring others down too. People's misunderstanding of the gospel leads to their own fears becoming other people's fears. Don't let anyone sway you from the truth of what the gospel is. Even if it was a pillar like Peter, even if it's someone who you so strongly respect as a leader in this church or outside this church, if they are leading you astray, that's a big problem. Because one can not only betray the gospel by false preaching, 
but it can also be through false practices, especially ones that fracture the unity of the church. And this is what Paul had to address because Peter's actions had significant impacts on this church in Galatia. Now, Paul being a Jew gives a good insight into his thoughts about being a Jew in the presence of the gospel. He's saying that we Jews amongst the Gentiles, we look pretty good. We have the law, the covenant, and this was all given to us from God. And this is what God justified us by. But now we have Christ. Paul points to what real justification is how we truly are accepted by God. We look at verse 16. Know that a person is not justified by works, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. I don't know if any of you guys have seen that TV show. It's pretty old now. It's called Red Dwarf. I know Eagle would know. Um, a few others would know. Um, it was a bit of a comedy sci-fi. But there was an episode where there was this judge going around the universe. I don't know who appointed him, but he was pretty much going around to everyone who's alive, and he actually tells them, justify your existence. And if they were not worthy to exist then he would replace them with someone who never had a chance to actually exist beforehand. Now the judge asks the characters, justify yourselves. And then he determines if they're successful and whether they're allowed to continue to exist or whether he gets rid of them. Now, I use this example because justification, or dikaisonia, has its background in a legal setting. It's like a courtroom where to do with justice and righteousness. So justification has to do with being acquitted in a court of law. So Paul is saying, by faith in Christ, rather than the law, we are not, sorry, rather than by the law, we are declared not guilty of the sins we have committed, but Christ in us enables us to live the life we previously couldn't. The justification that we see in Scripture is something out of this world. It's, it's justice flipped upside down. Through faith in Christ, we are not guilty of sins and are declared in right standing with God. God's justification is all about setting things right. It's God instituting the right order of things His way. Only God can set things right to His standard. The way of setting things right is what he did through the death of Christ. The law no longer defines his grace, but it is his son's death that now defines acceptance. Now, if I am acquitted of my crimes in court, those crimes are not held against me anymore, according to the laws that put me on trial in the first place. But God even flips this idea of justice around. Imagine a judge serving the sentence for the criminal who he has to sentence. And then after the sentence, not being bitter about serving a sentence he was not meant to do, 
He then asks the criminal to come and literally be a part of his family and to prove that this person is a part of his family. He now gives this criminal an equal share of the inheritance that his natural-born children did. He's not just saying, come and live with me, but you are my family because I'll give you what I was going to give you, give to my children as well. This is what God does. When we accept Christ, his righteousness is on us and the Holy Spirit then transforms us. That is when works come into play. We are treated first as if we've never sinned and nothing holding us down to then truly live the life that we couldn't before. It's not like if I say something wrong or if I do something wrong to someone and they say, I forgive you, and then later on they still throw my wrongdoings in my face. God's justification is complete exoneration. Is that not good news? That we, having this sinful nature, and God addressed this over 2,000 years ago, calling people to his justice, a justice that is on our side. See, if I seek to justify myself before God by being the most moral and ethical person I can be, which I try to do in my life, I try to outweigh the bad with the good. But by doing that, I took the place of Jesus, which is where I failed, where it is Jesus who takes my place. You can be a good person, a moral person, whatever you want to call it, but by denying the gospel, you're never going to be free of the guilt that sin puts on us. The true portrait of Jesus is that he is not a lawgiver, but a life giver and the forgiver of sins. We must have faith in Christ and then we look to good works. Martin Luther, he had a, I like his quote, as long as we have this body, sin will dwell in our flesh, then too we sometimes drive away the Holy Spirit. We fall into sin like Peter, David and other holy men. Nevertheless, we may always take recourse to this fact that our sins are covered and that God will not lay them to our charge. Sin is not held against us for Christ's sake. Where Christ and faith are lacking, there is no remission or covering of sins, but only condemnation. If there is no Jesus and faith in him, we're in big trouble. Verses 19 to 21. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Another quote by Mr. Luther. By faith in Christ, a person may gain such sure and sound comfort that he need not fear the devil, sin, death, or any evil. Sir devil, you may say, I am not afraid of you. I have a friend whose name is Jesus Christ, in whom I believe. He has abolished the law, condemned sin, 
vanquished death and destroyed hell for me. He is bigger than you, Satan. He has licked you and holds you down. You cannot hurt me. This is the faith that overcomes the devil. In our society, we create our own morality, ethics, as we believe we are doing the best for society. And if we're Christians, we think we're doing the best for God. However, the parameters that we set for our good behaviour are still fallible in their ideology. Even when we're looking at love in our society, we still see that people fail to live up to love because there is still judgment. People cannot even measure up to their own standards of good. Imagine then not living up, being able to live up to God's standards then. It can't be done. If we can't live up to our own, how are we going to live up to God's? But Paul says he died to the law, the very moral code that condemned him to be truly able to live for God. Not until I considered that my morality and ethics that I create are completely dead, that then I could only settle my conscience because all I could see was Christ. The Bible shows us that Christ is our conscience and my conscience must become one so that I cannot see anything else but Christ crucified and raised from the dead for me. Faith connects us so intimately with Christ that he and you become one person. When we look at ourselves, we find plenty of sin. When we look at Christ, we find no sin. Whenever we separate ourselves from the person of Jesus, our own, our own person from us, we live under the law and not under Christ. And then we are condemned. This is what Paul shows when he states, it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. If the gospel is not the heart of who we are, then Paul puts Christ died for nothing. And we know that not to be true. As we take communion this morning, let this ring true for you. The blood and body that we partake in is the price offered for you to know God personally. The blood and the body are the justification for your sins. We can offer nothing to God at all. We can only receive. And God offers the most precious thing he has, his son. And grace flows from that cross to where we are now. Let the truth of God's message do what it did to me. Grace shooting through all the confusion around you like an arrow straight to the heart telling me if you've got nothing to fear as Jesus cancels out your fear. Come and experience this. It's no longer I that live but Christ that lives in me. I'll ask the band to come up as I pray. Oh, sorry.